for those joining us online as well, good morning. <laughs> if we haven't met yet, my name is Dave. I'm a lead pastor here, and it's a joy to be able to celebrate with you. Thank you so much to the team for leading us and for Jill for leading us in prayer this morning as well. And for all those who came early to set up media team upstairs, thank you guys. You know, it's often over, you know, kind of this next month, this season, that people who have made a New Year's resolution to get fit often find things going a little bit, you know, not so great. Especially if you, if you viewed fitness as like something that you could add on to an already busy lifestyle. Like, so maybe you want to, you know, like you're like, I'm going to go for a run or I'm going to go cross-country skiing or I'm going to work out. And that's great. And, and you do it maybe even with consistency for a few weeks. But then there's this level of discouragement that settles in because after about a month, it's like all of your prior habits, all your prior commitments, your schedule, you're now needing to make decisions about what you're actually going to do with those. And so those, those prior built-in habits begin to sort of just take hold of your life again. See, if, if you want fitness to be a, a part of you, you can't just add it on. It's not something you can just tag on to an already busy schedule. It, it requires a more holistic shift of habits, of lifestyle, and a lot of time for those habits and shifts to actually begin to make a difference in your fitness. Now, in a similar way, um, we need to see that evangelism or speaking about Jesus, um, it's not just a one-off event. It's, it's not just a thing that you sort of like tag on to an already full and busy schedule. You know, you might think something like this. Oh, you know, I, I need to make a priority to like speak to a coworker at lunch sometime at work. And, or a church might even say, hey, you know what? We need to add like an evangelistic outreach event like once or twice a year. And then you do the thing and then you feel like you can check the thing off the list and say, okay, well, we did the thing and now can I just go back to my regular life <laughs> doing our in-house things again? So just like, just like fitness, a life of fitness, a life on mission with God isn't just another checklist thing to do. It's a whole shift in how we view ourselves. And it takes time. It takes time to see the impact of that whole new missional life, just like it takes time to see the impacts of your working out. That happens over time. I think the way that Jesus calls the first disciples gives us a great picture of this as we begin this morning. He, he, he comes up to these guys that are mending their nets on the shore, and after this interaction with them, you might remember, he says this, essentially, this is his message. He says, come and follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. They left their nets, followed him left their previous lifestyle on the shores, on the banks, and they started on a new world-changing journey, wherein following Jesus, they adopt this missional identity, no longer fishers of fish, but fishers of people. And so summing up the big idea from last week, part one, when we adopt this missional identity, we come to see ourselves as, as informal missionaries, as participants with God in his mission. And it's why our character, as we saw last week, why it matters so much. 
uh, our, our, our regular habits of how we treat other people, how we treat those in the body of Christ around us, um, how we willingly, even joyfully, put the interests of others above our own interests, as Paul says in Philippians 2. It's why character matters so much. So, kind of in sum, adopting a missional identity means the decisions I make, they're going to circle back to answering this question. Is the way I'm approaching this issue, this topic, the way I'm acting in relation to the community and the broader community, is it helping to display the beauty of the gospel? Is it inviting people to wonder why I live the way I do? Is it serving God's purposes to reach the world? Or is it in some way putting a stumbling block in the way of that? That was the big idea that we looked at last week. And, and we also saw in the message and in the study that really God's saving work, that's God's work ultimately. So although we participate with him, although we have a role to play, it's God that changes hearts and lives. And it's why we finished our study last week. If you went through the study guide, or if you need to go through it, do that. <laughs> if you go through the study guide, you'll see we ended by saying our practice, our commitment is to write down three or four names of people in our world that we are going to be praying for regularly, praying that God would open up their hearts and lives to see him in his beauty. See, when I'm committed to regular prayer for my neighbors, it actually helps me stay focused and rooted in my missional identity. Like, I'm aware of how I live among my neighbors because my prayer life is soaked in praying for them already. So it changes how I interact with the world around me. As I pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be honored. It makes my life want to say, how do I do that too? When I pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I'm praying, and in my neighborhood, and across the road, and in the community I live, may that be so, Lord, and may I be a part of seeing that happen. And so practice one, it just goes like this. We bring our friends to God in prayer, knowing ultimately it's God's work, not ours, that leads people to a life-giving encounter with God. Now, jumping off from that starting place of that missional identity and praying for our community and neighbors, the next weeks are all going to be about how do we actually act, live? What do we do next? How do we engage the mission in practical ways? And so would you pray with me as we begin uh, our next steps here? Father, uh, open up our hearts, open up our, our minds, um, help us to see ourselves as you see us, your beloved children, your called ones that we might uh, just, just revel in that and who you've called us to be, but more, Father, uh, that we would catch a glimpse for what you're calling us to be about as well. We pray this for your glory and our joy. Amen. Now, when we talk about fruitful ministry, things that bear, because that's what Jesus says. He says, I, you know, like, I'm sending you out to bear fruit, to make a difference in the world. When we talk about that in our setting, we recognize that as we look back at the Bible, that our culture is very different than the culture in which Jesus and, and the early church were first ministering. And yet, there are also key similarities. There's examples that we see in Jesus and how he brings the message, the good news of the kingdom that's coming, that actually sheds light on our approach and how we follow him. So here's what we read in Matthew's gospel. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Matthew 9, verses 9 to 13. I believe it's on the screen behind me as well. 
But here's what we read. And Jesus went on from there. He had just healed a man who was paralyzed from birth and forgave his sins. And so he went on from that encounter. And he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I just want to begin with a really basic, but I think profound um, approach of Jesus to ministry here that we're being called into. When Jesus gets invited to this banquet, we see that he enters into Matthew's world, his friend group. He's present in the very real world that, that Matthew, this tax collector, is currently engaged in, and it's full of people who would be outsiders uh, those who have maybe lived in ways that are out of line with God and, and his desires. That's what, when, Math, when Ma Matthew talks about sinners, that's what he means. People are living outside of God's intent for them. But by his presence with them, he shows that he's interested and invested in their lives. He is interested and invested in what they will become and who God is calling them to be. In fact, to eat with someone in the ancient world was a way of saying, I am happy to be associated with you. It's like a welcome. There's a sense of generosity of, of spirit in that. And that's why it gets such a large reaction from the Pharisees. The Pharisees are a, a religious group who really want to love God, so it seems. And they really value the Bible, also it seems. And they take it very seriously, but the problem is they also seem to take themselves very seriously, and they misunderstand God, and they misunderstand what the Bible is actually calling them to do and be about. That's why you see this clash with the Pharisees so often with Jesus. And in fact, Jesus was so at ease with taking his, miss, his mission to where people were really at that those particularly religious folk like the Pharisees they falsely accuse him of being a glutton and a drunkard in Luke chapter 7. And those disciples that Jesus called, I mean, they follow him into this same pattern of life. They find themselves surrounded by all sorts of people that are lost and broken and disordered. And that's not all. Jesus also accepts an invitation to another dinner party on the opposite extreme in the religious world. In Luke 14, we see that Jesus is invited to the home of a prominent Pharisee. And we read this in Luke 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Did you notice that? Carefully watched. That doesn't sound like a fun dinner party to me. That, that doesn't sound like the small talk was going to be very, like, delightful. And yet, he goes. Why? Because he came for all of us. He came for the ones that were broken and knew it. And he came for the ones who really seemed to have their lives together and didn't know that they needed God's work in them. 
He came to bring life and wholeness and healing to those buttoned-down religious types who were very far from God because of their self-righteousness, because they felt they could be their own savior by being very, very good. See, the the self-righteous don't see a need to change because they think they're pretty good. I don't really need God, but we are all broken. All of us are in need of him, regardless of how morally upright we think we are. In fact, Jesus will let his life be broken apart on the cross so that we can come home. We sang it so well this morning, that we might have peace with him, with God forever. That's what provides us salvation, and it's the hope that we continue to then hold out for the rest of the world, and I want everyone to know it. I I want everyone to experience this fresh and newness of life. That's the good news that we share. That's what we ourselves are invited into, and then asking others to say, would you look at this with me? But here's what else we need to see. The big point this morning. Jesus' pattern of ministry is what his followers, you and I, are still called to emulate. So what does it look like? Well, over the next four weeks, uh, including today, we are going to be drawing on a number of really great books, uh, and especially a fantastic little book called How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. Uh, The subtitle is Personal Evangelism in a Skeptical World. Um, And the author, Sam Chan, is an Australian medical doctor who also did a PhD in theology and works as a public evangelist with a group called the City Bible Forum in Sydney, Australia. So today we're going to get really practical and talk about um, two big ideas from his book. And as we looked at last week, the, the news about Jesus is incredibly good that God loves us, that that he came to save us and renew us, in fact, to renew the whole world. How incredible. And yet many of our neighbors might also say, yes, that does sound incredible. And what they mean is like not credible. How on earth could I ever believe that? We have to consider that for people, especially in our culture, the journey from where they are to a place of of uh, saving, trusting faith in Jesus is a substantial one. It's a long journey. And we have to think about that journey well together. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how God's work is like a field. One person, uh, they, they break up the soil and maybe they plant some seeds. Another waters. Another, at the end of the day, gathers the grain that's harvested. That tells us that evangelism is a long and drawn-out process, that there's a lot of pieces and a lot of people that will be involved in it as well. And that preparation, that's what we're going to talk about this morning in particular. Now, when sociologists talk about how a person comes to see a story as believable or not, they use the language of plausibility structures. And that's just a fancy way to say this is basically like the container which can hold your beliefs. And so your plausibility structure is the way that I see the world, and can I even fit that belief system into the container, you might say. Um, What I can see as plausible or not is going to be predetermined in a lot of ways. It's not something we're even conscious of. It's predetermined by our education and upbringing and experiences. It's uh, impacted by the evidence that we see and how we interpret it, and, and especially by our community, those that we share life with. So our plausibility structures are formed 
uh, by these three components. One, our experiences. Two, our community. And three, the facts, data, and evidence. And we might like to think that, that we make our decisions almost entirely on facts, data, and evidence. And yet, <laughs> um, that's just not what we actually see in our world. We, the most determinative factor is the community that we're a part of. In fact, our community shapes how we even interpret the data and the evidence. So like it or not, those that you're connected with regularly, that you have conversations with, those about deepest core beliefs, that is the largest influence on what you can even imagine as being true. Said differently, and especially to the point that we're making today, people will rarely change their view or belief if they don't have a group of people in their life who help show and make sense of that different belief. Like different communities might look at the same set of facts, evidence, and data, and they'll interpret them in wildly different ways. Sam Chan gives the example of uh, how a group of students, I'm not sure if this is a great example, but I'll use it anyways. There's a group of students um, at maybe a local church, and their parents, they say, you got to go to youth group. And they show up, and there's like three or four of them. And they sit in the circle, and they're struggling to know if they can even believe that all that they're hearing about Jesus at youth group. And, and they're kind of the schmucks who are sitting here on a Wednesday night when their friends are all out doing fun things. Uh, the people that they spend most of their time with are doing something else that doesn't relate to Jesus at all. And so they're struggling to, to know if they can even believe the stories about Jesus, and the story of Jesus. But take those same students to a conference where they meet with thousands of other young people who also are worshiping Jesus, and all of a sudden they go, wow, we're not the only ones who believe this? Maybe it is true. Now, to be clear, um, more people believing something doesn't make it true. It, it's, it's not true because people believe it, but it becomes believable. Epistemologically, like what our minds can hold, our plausibility structures are expanded when we get to know other people. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, when he speaks about Jesus and Jesus' resurrection, he says actually 500 people witnessed Jesus being raised from the dead. Now, does that make it true or not? It's not true that 500, did I say 5,000? I meant 500. Uh, 500 people um, because Paul said that doesn't make it true. It's true regardless of how many people saw it happen or not. But it makes it more believable. Epistemologically, it becomes more believable when that is a shared experience of a large number of people. So again, people rarely come to take on a whole new vision of life, to embrace a new set of beliefs until they're exposed to a community of people who hold that belief system, who they see as trustworthy, where they can begin to say, wow, like these these, these people, this community, like they're, they're intelligent people, they're seemingly normal people, and yet they do believe in Jesus and structure their life around him. Maybe I can actually give this a look. See, there's a long-held assumption that the way someone comes to faith looks a bit like this. First, they think about it, and they reason it out, and then they believe in Jesus. And then after they believe in Jesus, then they become part of a Christian community, and then after they're part of the community, they, they begin to live and behave in ways that are, that are different. So there's this idea that it's, it's belief and then belonging and then behavior shift. This is almost never true in our culture. 
It's certainly not been the case with those I've shared Christ with over the years. Typically, a person comes to believe the news about Jesus only after they've come into a community, not necessarily a church, but a community of believers, of normal people whom they respect, even like, who actually believe this stuff about Jesus. And then they can begin to, after that, seriously entertain the historical, factual grounds for belief. And then after spending enough time with these Christian people, they find that their life and maybe even their behaviors begin to shift to be in more alignment with that community they're spending time with. And it's often then that they find belief in Jesus is actually what makes the most sense of it all. And they begin to dig into the more logical, rational arguments for Christian faith. So for many people, the order is, is shifted. It's often something more like this. Belonging leads to behavioral shifts, and then belief in Jesus is actually what makes sense of it all. Now, the behavioral shifts will deepen, of course, as they actually meet Jesus. They'll actually have different motivation for those behavioral shifts, but, but typically it's, it's, it's belonging, then shifts, and then belief. So whether you like it or not, our community is a big factor in what we come to believe. I really do think that the evidence for belief in Jesus, that he was the son of God, that he died on a Roman cross, that he was rose again, I find it compelling. I think the evidence is strong. It makes the best sense of the historical rise of, the Christian, of Christianity in the first century and helping people see that history, the good arguments, that's necessary for people to grapple with Christian faith, but something else has to happen. We actually have to give them a container to put that in. And in order to have that new container, they need you and I. They need a community of believers to be able to see how this has actually worked out for it to become compelling for them. So how do we do that? Here's a few things. You may have heard of a Christian bubble. Like a group of Christians who, well, they basically only are connected to other Christians, right? My mind often goes to like Bible colleges that are in the middle of the prairies and there's nothing else but a Bible college. And so people live in that bubble because everybody they know is a believer already. They have zero non-Christian friends that they're meeting with on a daily basis. Well, there's also such a thing as a non-Christian bubble as well. Chan writes about, um, he talks about the New York Times uh, magazine or newspaper. He says, he, I enjoy reading it. I particularly enjoy the crossword puzzles. But he was told that many of the staff that work there do not know any Christians. And it's not just that they don't have Christian friends, like, but they couldn't say that they even know a single one. It's a completely non-Christian bubble. What does this mean for us as we think about Christian bubbles, non-Christian bubbles? It means we need to start bursting bubbles, actually. We need to think about this both on a personal level, but also on a church level, too. So here's the practice we're going to talk about. Those who are Christians often have a group of non-Christian friends. It's the people that you know from work. It's maybe the people that you play sports with or that you're at a club with. And you have a group of Christian friends. And these groups just like rarely or if ever interlap. They, they, they never kind of connect anywhere. Um, so what happens is that, you know, you do an event with your, your Christian friends one night, and then you do an event with your, like, your work friends another night, your non-Christian friends. What's needed here, as we started with, is a whole lifestyle shift. 
If being a follower of Jesus means being a fisher of people, adopting that missional identity, that will mean thinking about our activities, our schedules, our habits in a new kind of way. The big idea here then is to merge your universes, as Chan puts it. It's to find ways of connecting these two groups. Does that sound hard? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and I do mean legitimate friendships here as well, just to, as a caveat. I'm not saying, well, I'm just trying to make friends with the goal of evangelizing. If they're not interested in the Jesus stuff, I just dump them and move on. That's not what I mean. I'm talking about real friendships with the actual people in your life because you see the image of God in them, you like them, and you care about them. So I help find it helpful by thinking this way. I want to share my whole life with my friends, and that includes the very most core part of who I am as a Jesus follower. Sometimes I might put it like this. Would I be a good and loving friend if I had the keys to life and eternity, the way to have peace and a restored relationship with God, and then I just didn't share it with my friends? Would I be a good friend uh, to not want them to, to see and experience Jesus for themselves? So that's how I look at that. Like, I, I have these real authentic friendships with non-believing people, and I want to speak life and hope and truth into their lives. We're going to talk about more of how to do that over the weeks to come. But, but here's what we have to see, too, is that evangelism is a team sport. Oftentimes, if someone gets fired up about evangelism, they say, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to, like, go to paint night, or I'm going to join a soccer team, and that's awesome. The problem is, if you are the only Christian person in the room, uh, then there's no Christian community for someone else to look at, to see that you're not just a loner who believes weird things. <laughs> and so the goal then is to help your non-Christian friends become friends with your Christian friends. How hard is that? Not as hard as you might think. Let me give some examples. For several years, there's a group of guys, mountain bikers, um, and they would get together once a week for a ride and they would usually go for some drinks afterwards. Uh, it was a group of men from our church who had lots of friends from their workplaces, and they invited them along. So the goal wasn't an evangelistic outreach event, but it was, in a sense, laying the groundwork for the gospel to become more believable so that when opportunities arise to talk about the things that matter most, including the things of God, people could actually be like, you know what, I think I need to pay attention to this. I, I could, if this person could be a Christian, maybe I could be too. Or maybe you're a parent and you're signing your kids up for soccer this spring. Great, we'll probably do that too. Could you invite some of your Christian friends to sign up their kids and some of your non-Christian friends to sign up their kids as well? What would that do? Well, it would give you the opportunity to sit on the sidelines as, as your kids are playing soccer and to connect with those people and to connect those people to each other. And that might lead to saying something like, hey, you know what, we should meet at the park uh, and just have coffee um, maybe after the game today. Or it might even, as those relationships are built, be something where you say, hey, we should have a whole crew over for a barbecue next weekend. No agenda other than to merge your two universes, to bring all those people together. This is a part of laying the groundwork. That will eventually go on, Lord willing, to speaking specifically about Jesus but we have to provide that plausibility structure and that requires a community to help do it. I realize, because some of you are introverts, that um, that might sound like an introvert's worst nightmare. Um, I don't think it has to be though. Follow me for a second. See, introverts, all of them that I know, have and need friendships, right? 
The primary difference between an extrovert and an introvert is that extroverts are energized when they spend time with people. Even new people that they're just getting to know, they, they do small talk and they enjoy it. Where introverts are often drained by spending time with people, especially in new situations. That doesn't mean an introvert can't connect with others or can't connect their Christian friends and their non-Christian friends and bring them together. It just means maybe being conscious of your own energy levels. It means thinking about your schedule so that you can say, I, I do want to prioritize doing this. Do I need to make more room in my schedule in a different way to be recharged? That might be a part of your thinking. It also is important to remember, again, this is a team sport. It's about joining together with other believing friends too. So maybe you and a friend or two, maybe they're even more outgoing. Maybe you can connect with some other non-Christian friends in your circles together. You work at this as a team. And, and at, at, so that's the kind of the personal level. Let's talk at more of the church program level for a minute. Um, this is why we aim to actually make almost all of our ministries very porous. That means we're open to connecting and welcoming these two groups together in a non-threatening kind of way. For example, our women's book club is designed as a merge your universes type of thing. The pickleball that we host on Thursdays is really a great example of how a group of Christian people uh, created a space to bring their non-Christian friends and to mix. Now, these aren't evangelistic events where people are going to, you know, kind of take a break and then preach the gospel for 15 minutes and then go back to the event. No, what they're there for is to do that groundwork and to lay um, a space where people begin to get interested in and say, maybe I could follow Jesus. And the church will continue to host opportunities, maybe next step opportunities, to hear the good news specifically at like a quote-unquote Christian thing. It's inviting your neighbor to Alpha or inviting them to join us at our young adults group if they're in that category or even to come to church on a Sunday morning. Now, we do run events at times when the gospel is really presented in a winsome way. And we do hope that even our Sunday services are open and accessible so that people from the broader community who are seeking can come and actually understand what we're talking about. That is one of our goals for sure. But here's something else we need to see. We need to enter the world of our friends, to go to their things. People will be much more likely to come to our things if we've already been willing and are readily in, in, in involved in their lives, in their world. Jesus, as we saw, he went to their things first. He made those moves. And so that's our last point. And we'll look more. If you check out your study guide this week, it'll talk more about how to do this next part. So the practice is simply this. Go to their things, and they'll be much more likely to come to yours. I have one more way I want to illustrate what we're talking about today in the most down-to-earth way possible. Um, I want to invite my friends Blake and Justin to join me, and they're going to share a bit about the journey that they've been on as friends together. So I'm going to call them up, and I'm going to do a little bit of an interview with these guys. Yeah, come on up, Blake. Come on up, Justin. And I'm going to say a thank you to them, because I'm kind of putting them on the spot today. I'm going to give you that, Blake and Justin. I want you guys to step right up here, because then people can see you. So first of all... Um, Maybe, Justin, I'll start with you on the far end there. How did you guys meet? Uh, so it was 2016-ish. I was teaching a swing dance class. And uh, Blake was a student in that class. So I originally got to know him through the swing dance community. 
Yeah, awesome. And, and Justin, what was it like to invite Blake to young adults? Um, what were some of the pieces that were already in place in your relationship before you, you made that move? Uh, okay, uh, to be honest, initially I was a bit nervous, uh, but it was, it was very natural um, for me because, uh, like, yeah, during the time of our friendship, uh, I felt like we were, we were already sharing our lives with each other. Uh, I, grew, I grew close to Blake. Um, I started, we started hanging out outside of the dance community, like going to board games nights and dinners and road trips or just hanging out on the couch and talking about life. And so uh, I felt like I was comfortable with talking about Blake, about anything under the sun. And so, uh, yeah, inviting him out felt not so much different than inviting him out to like any other thing I would usually <coughs> invite him out anyway to. Yeah, awesome. Uh, Blake, tell me a little bit, tell us a little bit more about what it was like to come to the Alpha program. This was just last year, by the way, last fall. Mm -hmm. And so you can even just step right to the, your notes there. I'll right. over. Um, well, when Justin invited me to this Alpha program at Young Adults, uh, my first reaction was, me? <laughs> me, the atheist friend at a church thing. I, I, I don't know. And then he mentioned there was free food, and I was like, okay, I'm sold. <laughs> um, in terms of actually attending the program, um, my initial thoughts were that this is really weird. Um, like the worship singing and the people doing the, the strange movements during the worship singing, um, <laughs> uh, all the very one-directional talking about how great God and Jesus were slash are, uh, very off-putting. Uh, my attendance was a bit spotty at first, uh, just because, you know, didn't know many people there except for Justin, and uh, me being the introvert that I am, uh, new situations with unfamiliar people is uh, daunting, to say the least. Um, but I did notice that when I did go, uh, the people there were incredibly friendly and very welcoming, and that certainly lent to me feeling a little bit more comfortable. Um, I eventually de decided to start attending more consistently, and I started making new friends, and people started inviting me to things, and it was just really nice. Yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, tell us a little bit more about what you've experienced over the last few months as well. <clears throat> okay. Uh, to answer that one, I'm going to have to do a little bit of background info. Um, essentially, a big thing for me before I even considered becoming Christian um, was that I had all these stereotypes that I needed to just break down, deconstruct. Um, and I can thank quite a few people, including Dave and Justin, um, with being patient with me on that process, as well as maybe being firm with me in some cases. Um, as, and that just during that process. Um, removing those stereotypes allowed me to open up my mind and allowed me to see things for what they are rather than what I was told they were. Um, and that gave me the space to think, to learn stuff, to ask questions, and eventually decide what to do. Um, so yeah, I began attending Young Adults, I think around mid-October 2020. Um, September of 2021 was when I was seriously considering becoming Christian. Um, and that's when I really started paying attention to what's being taught at young adults. Um, and then about mid-November of 2021, 
Um, I sat down with a number of people one-on-one, -on -one, including Justin and Dave, and I essentially grilled them on, as Justin put it so eloquently, how to Jesus. <laughs> and I received some pretty great answers from them. Uh, at one point, Justin assigned me some homework, uh, and he told me to pray. And I was like, okay, <laughs> you say so. Um, so I did, and it was a really funny, but also surprisingly comforting experience. Um, I then met up with Dave a few days later after that, and during our conversation, and I can say this with absolute certainty, um, we were talking about the golden rule, and Dave enlightened me by saying that the golden rule was Christian in origin. Um, so that blew my mind, because I've been doing that my entire life, and did not know at all that it was Christian in origin. Um, so it was at that point that I was like, okay, well, if I've been doing this my entire life, I'm, I'm Christian, like, that's it. <laughs> um, so then I decided to crack open a Bible that same night, um, and I read through all of Matthew in one sitting. Yeah, 50 pages. <laughs> um, and uh, it was pretty cool finding out, you know, how Jesus actually lived and what his life actually was about rather than what I was told through media and other sources. Um, and it was also really cool because I actually stumbled across the golden rule and I was like, oh, it's there. <laughs> Not that I didn't believe Dave, like, <laughs> it was there. Um, so here we are, almost two months later, and I'm now Christian. Um, going from atheist to Christian has been a full 180 for me, as spirituality has never really been a thing for me, and I haven't really even given it thought. Um, I'll admit, still feels a little weird to say that I'm Christian, but I'll get used to it. <laughs> Thank you, Blake. That's it. really exciting. I have one more question. Yeah, isn't that exciting? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Yeah. So my, la my last question, this is really kind of about what we're talking about today too, but what role did the friendship of Justin and your experience of Summit and our community play for you in this process? Okay, I'll start with Justin. <clears throat> uh, if he had invited me to young adults and hadn't gently encouraged me to keep going, uh, I probably wouldn't be here right now. I would probably be at home sleeping. <laughs> um, I also wouldn't have ha met all the wonderful people that I've met through Young Adults. And he was really patient with me all the way, never tried to coerce me or guilt me into becoming Christian. Uh, he just gave me the space to just observe and think and to come to my own conclusions. Maybe with some gentle nudging here and there. Uh, I can say the same thing for the community as well. Um, I never felt like I was being guilt-tripped or shamed for not being Christian whenever I sat at the table um, or was invited to a group. Uh, as I continue to go to young adults, just walking into this room and seeing everybody, especially after deciding to become Christian, I was just filled with this warmth. And I couldn't quite, quite describe it, but for the lack of better words, it just felt really nice. Um, it's hard to feel that warmth and acceptance um, from a group and just look at it and say, yeah, I don't want that. Like, really hard to turn that away. Um, 
while I can't go too much into detail, because I'm probably out of time here, uh, I can say that I'm, I think God was certainly pointing it, me towards this uh, in multiple ways, well before I was even conscious of it. And I think he was speaking to me through Justin and Dave and everybody else that I spoke with, which again, for lack of better words, was pretty cool. <laughs> well, can I just, can we just say thanks so much for Justin and Blake and they're sharing their stories with us today. And just before you leave the stage, can we just pray for you guys too? Is that okay? I didn't, I didn't say that before. Should ask. Yeah? Okay. God, I thank you so much for Blake and Justin and their friendship and God, how you are working through that. And we just give you praise today for the way that you've been working in Blake's life and pray that he would continue to grow as he, uh, as he works through what it means to be a follower of Jesus now. We, we, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, thank you guys. And today, you know, we've been talking about our missional identity as fishers of people. And that requires a real lifestyle shift. This is an approach to friendship and how we integrate and merge our universes that might mean truly thinking and living in different ways than we're used to. But when you know who you are, when, when you have that security in Christ, to know that I'm his child and I, I've been called to be a part of his mission, when you allow yourself uh, that openness to the Holy Spirit bringing a sense of, well, as Paul says, the Spirit that God gives us doesn't lead us to timidity, but power, love, and self-discipline, then these lifestyle shifts are not only possible, but really what God wills for you and for us as a community. And so may it be that God's power at work in you and me help us to form a whole new way of seeing the world and working in it with him. Let's pray. Our God and King, I'm just so thankful for the, the stories that we heard today and thankful, Lord Jesus, that you show us what it means to, uh, to show up, to get involved in the lives of people, to integrate communities, to merge our universes. And we pray, Father, that for us as a church, uh, that we would begin to see our, our, our missional identity both personally and as a church, and that we would be making decisions and lifestyle shifts that, that fit with how you're working in the world and, and what makes best sense for us to, to follow you into the mission that you've called us to. And Father, now we, just, we ask that you would be glorified as we uh, work through these lifestyle shifts, knowing that it's by the power of your spirit that we're changed and renewed and encouraged. To you be all the glory. Amen.